Matthew 26, the light at the end of the tunnel is not a train coming to meet you. It is the nearing of the end of the gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're getting close enough. You should pray for me. Where am I going to go next? I don't know. And uh, pray for wisdom and guidance on this. In the gospels, the key question you should ask of every passage, sometimes it's harder to answer than other places, is who is Jesus? Who does this passage portray Jesus as? What does it teach me about the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? Before you seek to find application for you and change for your life, you must see who God is. You must see who Jesus Christ is. These are the gospels of Jesus Christ. These are the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. And that's where we must always start. So keep that in mind here in Matthew 26. What you're going to see is a couple things importantly. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king. He is in control of all things. He is in control of the very second of his own death and every part that goes into his own death. He is in control, though from human perspective, as you read through this, you say he's just being taken apart. Someone else is doing, all these things are happening to him. He seems to have no control. But notice, he is in total control at all times, no matter what it appears. And secondly, what we see about Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, it's more specifically pointed out here, this Lamb of God is a reference to the Passover Lamb of the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you're not familiar with the Passover Lamb, read about it in the book of Exodus. Find it. I didn't write down exactly what chapter, and I'm not as familiar as I should be with where that is. Read about that and then see what Christ is saying as we walk through this chapter, chapter 26. The Passover is a key component to this, and there's a lot to be said in the weeks to come, but I want to, to set the stage for this. So that's some introduction. Before we dig any farther into the scripture, let's pray together. Lord, only you can open the eyes of the blind, only you can open the ears of the deaf to hear and to see, and only you can change the heart to receive the good news of the gospel. And so we cry out to you to do that even this morning, to save souls for your glory and transform those and change those who are already saved. Sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. And we're thankful that we can come to an absolutely true word of God to tell us what we need to know, how we are to live even today. We thank you for that gift. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, we're going to start in verse 1. I will read 1 through 16. Please follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in a row in front of you. It's page 1056. So page 1056, Matthew 26. So follow as I read. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together to, in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's divine word, God's divine revelation to us this morning. May we hear it. The theme this morning, I've already kind of touched on it, but simplified. The theme is this, King Jesus is the sovereign Passover lamb. King Jesus is the sovereign Passover lamb. This is the Passion Week. We have been in the Passion Week for months. And as you get to the end of the gospel, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I just, I just came out, you know how it goes. So when you get to the end of the gospel of Matthew, when you get to the end of all the gospels, the last week of Jesus' life takes up a significant portion of the entire thing. So we are, most people are aware that Jesus lived, most Christians, that Jesus lived for three years on the earth in ministry, lived for 33 years, 30 years before ministry, three years of ministry. And so when you go to the gospels and you go to halfway through the book, you're not a year and a half into ministry. You're almost to the end of ministry, and that last week takes a long time, which is why we're going to spend so much time on the last week. So we are still in the Passion Week. You might remember before the long sermon series on the Olivet Discourse, the last sermon, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and he had gone to the temple, and he had cleansed the temple, and then he had done some other things. And so now we get back to what's happening in the narrative. So Matthew does a couple things. Matthew will write all this narrative, and then he'll have a sermon or a teaching that takes up a significant chunk of the passage, and then he'll get back to narrative, and he kind of goes back and forth. We just finished two chapters of a sermon, and now we have two chapters of the death of Christ. So we're moving from the discourse, the teaching, the sermon, to the action of the narrative. So when the narrative of the gospel changes to focus on the narrative, then our reading of it needs to change as well. So we're not looking so much for all of the teaching of Christ. We're looking for what we learn from the life of Christ and the life of those who are there as well. So what do we learn from what happened? What do we learn from how it happened? And what do we learn from who it happened to? And how do the characters, when I say characters, I'm not saying that this is just a story. But understand that as narratives are given, we must look at all of the people in the account and what we're learning from them as the characters in the story. The main character is Jesus Christ. That's why you always ask, who is Jesus in every account? Now we have other characters. So notice all of the people and notice them and what do we learn from them? And also pay very close attention to this. Do not put yourself in the position of the best people. So we read the Bible and we say, who is the best person? Oh, the woman that poured out the ointment on Jesus' feet? That's me. All right, good. I found myself in the story. Probably not. Now, it might be true, and we're going to learn some things from her, but notice the other people in the story. Notice the other disciples. Notice Judas especially. Notice the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. The high... Notice what everyone is doing. Pay attention to that in the story. This is the narrative. Now, the overarching context, I already mentioned it, is the Passover. It is the climax of this chapter. Christ is headed towards his greatest teaching on the Passover, and notice that things are happening here. 
So what Jesus says at the beginning of this chapter about the Passover is more than just a prediction of timing. It's a statement of great theological importance. When you read this, you're going to say, he's just telling them that the Passover is coming and that's he's going to die at the Passover and he's just giving them timing. Yes, he is giving them timing. He is promising and predicting, but it's more than that. Jesus dies at a specific time on purpose with meaning and that's what we need to see most importantly. So let's dive into the text. The first thing we see is King Jesus' prediction. King Jesus' prediction. Jesus has finished all these sayings. What were all these sayings? One long sermon on the Mount of Olivet. He said to his disciples after that sermon. So he is still talking just to his disciples. And he tells his disciples that the Son of Man will be crucified on the Passover. The Son of Man will be crucified on the Passover. That's the prediction. So what Jesus had repeatedly promised them already in the past is now just two days away. We're so close. Now, the reason they know these things is because Jesus has at least three times, given in the Gospel of Matthew, already told them this day of crucifixion was coming. And now he reminds them, you know that the Son of Man will be crucified. But now you know, because I'm telling you, that he will be crucified two days from now on the Passover. So when Jesus says something's going to happen, is it going to happen? In two days on the Passover, will Jesus be crucified? Is it a might? Is it a maybe? Is it a possibly? Is it a supposition? Is he guessing? Taking a shot in the dark? No, it's a promise. He is guaranteeing it. He can say this with absolute confidence because this has been God's purpose and plan all along. This has been God's purpose and plan all along. This is happening at just the time and place, and in just the way that God had planned. God had planned. And so this idea of the Passover and the timing of Christ's death sets the framework for every action and every decision of every person in the account. If this wasn't God's plan, then it wouldn't have happened this way. If this wasn't God's plan, it would have happened some other way. This is the because of the entire crucifixion. This is God's plan of redemption, and he's doing it exactly how he planned to do it, when he planned to do it, and nothing will stop the plan of God because God is sovereign. And that's what we want to see. So notice, I'm not just saying that. The Bible says that. The apostles preach that. Notice a couple places. Acts 2, verse 23 says this. This Jesus delivered up Delivered up, notice the word delivered here, delivered up to crucifixion. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice it is God's definite plan and God's knowledge of that plan, God's pre-planning that they crucified and killed Jesus Christ. Now sometimes you might read this passage and say, of course God knows all things, and so he knew what was going to happen. And that's how we read the word foreknowledge, God knowing beforehand. But no, it means more than just simply knowing something before it happens. Because if God was just responding to man's plans and he just knew it, then it would not be a definite plan of God. Because God definitely planned it in eternity past to rescue mankind in this way at this time, he knows 
This foreknowledge is more than simple knowledge in advance. This is what is absolutely going to happen. Notice how it is also prayed. That was a sermon. Now, this is the, the church praying in Acts 4.27. 4.27 and 28. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, predestination. All of this was predetermined by God, God's plan, not man's plan. Man is doing what they are doing because God has planned it. But notice, none of those things take away from man's responsibility. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So the commentator R.T. France says this, Jesus' death then is not a defeat for his divine purposes. It is the basis of his eternal sovereignty. Jesus' death is not a defeat for his divine purposes. It's not Christ going to the cross losing. The cross is the basis for his sovereignty. If he is in charge, this must happen. It's a confirmation of all these things. When you read of the Passover and Exodus, you know something that the Jewish people didn't know. That it was a picture pointing to a greater Passover lamb to come. The lamb that would take away the sin of the world. So when you put the blood on the doorpost and on the side of the door so that the death angel would pass over your family, there was going to be a time when there would be a lamb who would shed his blood and the Passover, uh, the angel passing over would be the angel of eternal death and you'd be given the gift of eternal life. But they couldn't see that. They didn't know it. It hadn't happened yet. But it was a picture to come. So the idea is crazy. So God redeems the people out of Israel in a specific way because 2,000, 3,000, I'm not sure of the timing, I can't remember, so stick with me. From that moment to the cross, something's going to happen 2,000 years later, and God knows that and has planned it, and it looks exactly the same way? Yeah. This is not just like God trying to make lemonade out of lemons. Oh, these people are going to do something. We've got to figure out a way to make this work. No, it's all planned. It all fits together. When you read the good news of the gospel from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation, you understand that it all fits. And it all fits because there's one author, and he planned it before it ever happened. He had it in his mind. It was his definite plan and predestined, and it all happens. Praise God. And he did it for what purpose? Well, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But to his enemies and those unaware of his promises, Christ appears helpless. Yet he is orchestrating every event. And so the framework is, is about the sovereignty of God, but not only about the sovereignty of God, it is also the meaning of this impending death. The Passover, that only points to God's sovereignty as the timing of events, but the meaning of his death, because back in Matthew one twenty one, the angel tells Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, he tells him to dream this, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name... Jesus, I almost said Jesus for some reason. I'm speaking Spanish all of a sudden. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, just an aside here. Some of you know this because you've done public speaking before, that you can be saying something and thinking all kinds of other thoughts at the same time. And uh, I don't know. Then when those wires get crossed, then you're in deep trouble. So I'm not sure what wire got crossed there. But she should call his name Jesus. If you're speaking Spanish, it would be Jesus. Or Jesus, or Yeshua, if you're, if you're Hebrew. For he will save his people from their sins. 
What did the angel promise Joseph and Mary? What is this baby going to do when he grows up? He's going to save his people from, from their sins. How? They don't know how. But it's guaranteed and promised from the beginning. Does the father know how? Has God planned it? Now you're in Matthew 26. Just look at verse 28. You probably don't have to turn your page. Verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Look at Matthew 121. He will save his people from their sins. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It all fits together. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. What is Jesus doing when he is going to be delivered up to to crucifixion? He's going to die for the sins of his people. And he does so as a willing sacrifice. Notice, he knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. If you knew it was going to be two days before you were going to be hung on a cross, what would you do? I mean, he came in on a donkey, but I wouldn't go out on a donkey. I'd find a horse. I'd get out of Dodge real quick, as fast as possible. If I know this is coming, why doesn't he flee? Because he is not running away from the cross. He's been pointed to it since the day of his birth, since before his birth, since before the foundation of the world. This has been the plan. And he's been pointing to it all along. He says, I'm gonna, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, because he wasn't there yet, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to be raised again. That's what's going to happen. So let's go. And they go. But it's not just the last week of his life. It's not just the last year of his life. It's his entire life. It's the entire eternity before, before time began. He is the lamb going to the slaughter. Sheep are not known to be fighting death, are they? They don't fight death. They don't even see it coming. They're sheep. And that's how he went. Willingly, silently, read Isaiah 53. And notice what the purpose and meaning of this death is. This is God saving us from God. This is God the Son saving us from the wrath of God the Father for our sins. This is Jesus willingly taking our place. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. You took my place. You poured yourself out in death for my sin. Our rebellion, our hatred, our wickedness, he takes our place on the stake and dies for us. That's the meaning. That's what he's saying. All of these things are pointing. Pay attention to that. So that when you get to verse 3, then it's not necessarily chronological. The then is not necessarily this happened, then this happened. Don't read Matthew necessarily chronological. He is chronological in most places, but not necessarily here. This is theological. Because Jesus, the divine king, has planned it and determined it and going to it, then they plot and plan to crucify him. Their plotting and planning is a part of his plan, and that's why they do it. Now, they also do it because they hate him, but we'll get to that in a minute. Therefore, the Sanhedrin plot to kill Jesus because Jesus is determined to die. The sovereignty is there. So notice that these, the Sanhedrin, these chief priests, and, and these, these leaders of the Jewish religious people, they're going to do this by stealth because they don't want the crowds, especially the Galileans who were supporting Jesus, to get in the way. Just look back a couple days, Jesus entered in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and how did the crowds respond? Especially the crowds of Galileans going up for the Passover with him. 
They welcomed him as the Messiah. They laid their cloaks on the ground. They laid palm fronds on the ground. And so you have a, a great contingency, a contingency from Galilee who was looking to him as the Messiah. You might also have some people in Jerusalem looking to him as Messiah. And they don't want these thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, to be against them. So they're going to do this quietly and try to kill him stealthily because they don't want the people to react. If they weren't afraid of the people, they would have arrested him and killed him Years ago, a year and a half or two years ago, three years into ministry, they would have killed him a long time ago. Notice what Matthew 12, 14 says. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That's Matthew 12, 14. So this had been their plan, but they had to do it in a certain way because the people would not have allowed it. The crowds were against that plan. So to carry out their plots stealthily, they decide not to do it during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. So they decide to wait. They're not going to do it during the feast, either uh, the feast that's going on there, what is it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Feast of the Passover. You can read it either way you want. They're not going to do it during this feast time. They decide to wait. But what do they not know? They don't know God's plan because Jesus is going to die on the Passover, but they're not going to arrest him before the Passover's over. I wonder whose plan's gonna be worked out. Their plan or God's plan? They say, we're going to wait at least a week. And Jesus says, no, it's going to be two days. And they say, no, that's our plan is, is, is a week at least. Notice what happens. It's going to be two days. Because they don't know what God knows, and they also don't know God's plan, but they don't know that Judas is going to present them with an opportunity too good to pass up. They don't see that coming. Not at all. But God not only knows it all, he is orchestrating it all. God has already determined the timing. He is working out the timing, and notice how he works it out, according to the thoughts, desires, and decisions of mankind. God's sovereignty does not remove human decision-making. God's sovereignty does not remove human responsibility. The passage is absolutely crystal clear. The Sanhedrin have thoughts this is what they want to do. This is what they decide to do. And yet God's plan and God's purpose are being perfectly, perfectly fulfilled all around inside their will, outside their will. So this is God's will. This is their will. They are thinking. They are planning. They're desiring. They're deciding. And of course, what they decide is going to be changed by what God has already decided. But notice that they are doing this freely. God's sovereignty, human responsibility fit together perfectly. So these men are responsible. That's why in Acts chapter 2, you crucified, you put him to death, fulfilling out God's predetermined plan. This is how these things work. Now, that leads us into verse 6. King Jesus anointed for burial. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, the question is now, when did that happen? It appears the best understanding is that this happened not, this, this is not chronological. He did not preach the Olivet Discourse, then come down off the mountain, and then go to this house. This appears to have happened a couple days earlier, but Matthew puts it here for theological reasons. Matthew really writes his gospel less chronologically and more theologically in making points. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but don't get caught up in the timing of these events necessarily because Matthew's trying to point out some specific things. Matthew's focus is on the Passover, and that's coming later in this chapter, and he's building to that in his themes of things that truly happened, but maybe not in this order. So we believe that this is what John is talking about, I believe in John 12, uh, which would have happened on the Sabbath day, the Saturday before Christ enters Jerusalem on Sunday. So this happened a few days earlier 
uh, in, in chronological order. But King Jesus is anointed for burial. He's at the house of Simon the leper. He's eating and fellowshipping uh, uh, according to these things. Now, we don't think that Simon was a leper right now. He was in the sense of Simon the leper because he used to be a leper, probably healed by Jesus Christ himself. Not sure, doesn't say. Um, but he's here eating and fellowshipping with them. And according to John 12, it is Mary, Mary and Martha Mary, who comes, the sister of Lazarus, and she pours expensive ointment on his head. If you were to study Mark 14, so John 12 and Mark 14 are the parallel passages in the Gospels. You can compare them. According to Mark 14, 5, this ointment is worth about a year's wages. Three times what 30 pieces of silver are worth. Okay, I'm giving you a frame of reference. So a year's wages, that's how much this bottle's worth. 30 pieces of silver is worth about four months' wages. So this ointment costs about three times what Judas is going to get later. Notice what Christ says about what she's doing. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. There it is, burial. There are two main points here that we need to see in the text, two things that the narrative is pointing to. The first one is this, the theological significance of the anointing. The theological significance of the anointing. What is the theological significance? First of all, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. So the Passover sets the stage back in verse 1, and now everything is connected to the Passover. And so Jesus is in the house, and the Passover lamb is in the house. And if you read Exodus, you understand that you would bring the Passover lamb, the lamb that you're about to slaughter, you bring him into the house before you slaughter him, and he lives with the family. Now, again, I don't have these things nailed down. I wasn't going to go into this much detail, but I think it's about 10 days. Now, we have little chicks in our house. Pray for us. Pray for God's mercy. There's little chicks in our house. They're not little chicks anymore. They're growing. They're about, I don't know, three weeks, two weeks. I don't know how old they are. They're not so cute anymore, but they're getting bigger. And we have these animals in our house, and my kids, they, they go and they hold the chicks, and they talk to the chicks, and they pet the chicks. And just in case you were wondering, when no one's watching, I sometimes go over there and spend a little time with them as well, but don't tell anybody. So I look at them, I talk to them, I say things to them, I say good morning and all those things. But my kids will do more of this to me. They'll hold them, they'll pet them, they're trying to figure out names for them, these little chicks. What if I were to go home today and say, you know what, it's time to slaughter Got my little hatchet. Let's go outside and let's take care of this situation. So what they would do at Passover is they bring in this little lamb. Ever seen a little lamb? Spotless lamb, beautiful, cute, I mean, cuddly, furry, lives with you for just 10 days, I think. And then what do you do at the end of those days? What does the family do? This family with your kids and your, all the little ones who've gotten used to this lamb, you've been this lamb, you're going to slit its throat shed its blood. At Bethany, the lamb is in the house. The lamb is two days away from death. This man they love, this man who's just raised her brother from the dead, Lazarus, he's in the house, he's fellowshiping with him. He's two days away from being slaughtered. And she anoints him in preparation for his burial. He's about to die, and we are preparing the body for death. That's what's happening here, theologically. 
Do the disciples understand that? No. Does she understand it? It appears she understood that what he had said, she believed. He'd told them at least three times before, and now he says it's two days away, and he's going to be crucified. That's what Romans do to criminals. If you crucify a criminal, you get no chance to prepare the body. So she prepares it before the death. She pours out the, the ointment that you put on a dead body before you bury it, before he dies. And Jeff Durbin talks about, and I think he saw some things from Al Mohler and some other people, and I didn't research it myself. This kind of ointment, <laughs> you ever had a bottle of perfume break in the house? You know, you dropped it, shattered, you know, just a little bit. This kind of stuff was so powerful that once you anointed a body, it would last for days on a dead body. You ever smell the dead body? Okay, now this, I got weird illustrations, but we, we had a deer that got hit in front of our house this winter, and so we drug it into the field. That's not mine, next door. It's a farmer's field, but we didn't, we only got it like this far outside my property line. I've learned my lesson, because yesterday I'm out mowing my lawn, and the wind is blowing right across that deer, right into me mowing. And so every time I'm driving that way, guess what I'm smelling? It's rough. That's what happens to dead bodies. They, the smell is, is terrible. And so we could go over that deer and anoint that deer in such a way that we could have such powerful ointment <laughs> that you couldn't smell the dead body anymore. You'd smell the ointment. Think how powerful that must be. She comes into a house and she anoints him with his oil. The idea is this. By the time Christ dies, has that smell left him? All the way through, everywhere he went, he smells like a dead body. Not like a rotting dead body, but like a dead body anointed. And everybody knows in that culture what that smells like because they know the ointments. They, they live with this stuff. I don't want to make too much. I'm just trying to paint you a picture of what is taking place here. Everywhere he goes for the next two days, everyone can smell the dead man walking. You know, it reminds me of some other illustrations, so hopefully you're, you're okay with these. I mean, I'm about halfway through. We're good. Um, the, you know, when someone is on death row, I've heard this. It's in the movies. It must be true, right? On death row, and they're going to take him out to, to the person, man or woman, to, to death row. What they, they, they cry out down the hall? You know, dead man walking. Everybody knows a dead man's coming, you know. And that's what that smell is, is announcing to everyone is, what happened to this guy? Someone dumped a bottle of ointment on him, and he's still alive because he's going to die. It is guaranteed, and this is what is happening. The theological significance is important. Now notice, secondly, in that, another theological point, Jesus' death is of incalculable value. Incalculable value. So what Jesus says is this is a beautiful thing. What she did is beautiful. It is so beautiful, so wonderful that wherever the good news, wherever you preach the gospel, from now till Christ returns, this story will be proclaimed in the whole world. That what she has done will be told in memory of her. This has been preached for 2,000 years. It'll be preached until Christ returns. What this woman did for Christ. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is glorious. We should celebrate it. Why did Mary do this? I already mentioned because she believed his promise of the coming crucifixion. So why would she take something worth whatever your salary is worth in the year? You can put your own value on it and dump that out on him. Because his death 
She does it in light of his coming death. His death is worth it all. There's no sacrifice, no cost, nothing worth the death of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see the second thing, the telling response to the anointing. So in contrast to this beautiful act of love, this beautiful act of devotion and faith, this wonderful, glorious act by this woman who pours us out Mary, we see two responses. Now, both of them are wrong. The first response is misguided, but the second response is the worst kind of treachery. So treacherous and terrible that we say that anyone who betrays another person is a Judas. We define betrayal by the name of this man. This is how terrible it is. So the first response is the response of the disciples. The disciples are indignant. They're indignant. They see what she does, and they're indignant. And you can't avoid what she does, because the whole house is filled with a smell. Unbelievably strong. And in their indignation, they go after this woman. Why are you wasting this on Jesus? Now you say, did they really say that to her? Notice what Jesus says when he speaks. He says, why do you trouble her? Why do you trouble the woman? They're troubling her. They go after her in their indignation. What are you doing? Why are you wasting this ointment on Jesus? At least wasting it on him now. It's a waste. I want you to underline that word in your Bible. This is a waste. Sometimes we who love Jesus most can be far dead wrong on so many things. These disciples who love Jesus, who follow him, and who've, who've been with him, who will grieve his death tremendously, do not understand what is happening, and they think it's a waste. So many things that we think, we think are wastes are really the most beautiful things. We must have a biblical perspective on all things. Indignation is a feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. It comes from the Latin word meaning not worthy. Why... This waste, he's not worthy. Jesus is not worthy to have this expensive ointment wasted on him. And now I'm, I'm just belaboring this point just a little bit because I want you to feel the weight of that. It says something about where their mindset is. And notice the comparison. They are focused on the poor. Look, it, we could have sold this for a large sum, a year's worth, a lot of money, and given it to the poor. And notice the but, but Jesus, aware of this, he says to her, says to them. So we see this comparison. They are focused on the poor instead of focused on Jesus and his death. He just told them two days till crucifixion. And what are they worried about? They're worried about poverty. They're missing it, and therefore they call what she does a waste. They are distracted by material concerns and miss the spiritual concerns. They're more concerned with alleviating physical needs than spiritual worship. This is a time for worship. This is a time for grief. This is a time for celebration, depending on how you view the cross. This is not a time to take care of the poor. You're missing the point. And when you miss the point, you see glorious things as wastes. We need to hear this. Jesus sets them straight. He's saying it's a matter of priorities and it's a matter of opportunity. And we need to get that. Where are your priorities? How much money have you wasted on Jesus? How much time have you wasted on Jesus? 
How many opportunities have you, have you given up because of Jesus? Think of all that Jesus has cost you. And so many people would tell you what? That's a waste. You are wasting your life serving him. You are wasting your time. You are wasting your money. You know what you can do with that money? Have you ever received the, uh, the, the end of the year giving thing from the financial secretary? So you can put it on your taxes and you realize how much you've given and you, you ever thought about, no, no, you're way more spiritual than I am, so none of you, you ever thought about what could I have done with that money? What could I have done with that money? Did I waste it? Was I a fool? So, priorities. Now, here's one thing I want to say right at the beginning. This verse should never be used, never to be used to defend the lavish expense of religious accoutrements, such as church buildings, church ministry, church stuff. This is not where the health and wealth prosperity preacher says, Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, and lavishly we pour out these things on us, and my jet is just a demonstration of my faith in Jesus, my private jet, because you always have the poor. This verse can be totally abused by terrible people who are taking advantage of others. And so we do not defend waste, true waste, even waste that's supposed to be ministry or church. You see my fingers? I'm doing the whole thing, you know? My kids taught me that. We don't defend that kind of excessive spending of money on things that have nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with ministry. Those things are not what Jesus is talking about. So take that and throw that out. People will take the scripture and twist it all kinds of ways. That's one way this passage is twisted. Another way this is twisted is that we need to understand that what we do for Jesus is more important than what we do for the poor. What we do for Jesus is more important than what we do for the poor. Christ takes precedence over the poor. The gospel takes precedence over charity. Yet, anything we do for the poor will be because of Jesus, not in spite of Jesus. We help the poor because we love Jesus. We help the poor out of our love for Jesus and to Jesus. But Jesus is first every time. And the disciples missed it in one of the most important points. They missed it. And therefore, they see this as a waste and not as a beautiful, glorious preparation for his burial. Now, here's what I want to say as a real application of this important point. Poverty will never be eliminated this side of eternity. That's one thing Jesus is saying. The poor you will have with you always. Now, we can abuse this, but I want to explain what this, I believe this means. The reason you cannot eliminate poverty is because poverty is comparative. Poverty is comparative. The only way you eliminate poverty is for everyone to have exactly the same amount. Because as soon as someone has more and someone has less, then you have two categories. And what's the category of people who have more? Rich. And the people who have less? Poor. Therefore, when one of your kids has $1 and the other kid has $0, one of those kids is rich and the other is poor. Just a dollar is all it takes. And you know how that is. Now, because here's how this works. I have a million dollars. You have a million dollars. Are we rich? A million dollars in 1776 or a million dollars in 2076? <laughs> Just wait. That million dollars is going quick, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, what's the problem? Am I rich with a million dollars or not? Am I rich? The only way I can define that is in comparison to 
everyone else. So comparison to you, we both have a million dollars. Both of us are either rich or we're both poor. We have to compare it to somebody else. The poor you will have with you always because you will never eliminate economic disparity. You might want to write that down and think about that for a while. You will never eliminate economic disparity this side of eternity. And therefore, no matter how much you give to the poor, you will always have the poor. Therefore, if the richest person in the world, let's say Jeff Bezos, and we combine him with Elon Musk, and they give all their money to the poor, will that eliminate poverty in the United States of America? No, what you'll just do is you'll add two more people to the role of the impoverished. Because you can give all your money, and there will always be people who have less than others. And as soon as we have people with more, then we can always say that certain people are impoverished. We can always say that we are in poverty. The poor is different than, and so how you define these things matter. And so this is important. And therefore, if we think about this, we then understand what Jesus is saying in light of the gospel. This is why eliminating poverty is not a gospel issue. People who are twisting the gospel want to make everything that they want to see happen in this world a gospel issue. They say, if you care about the gospel, you care about the poor. And if you understand the gospel, you care for the poor. And you care for the poor the way we tell you to care for the poor. And everything's a gospel issue. No, Jesus Christ just told you in this passage that caring for the poor is not a gospel issue. It's an outflow of Christians who love the gospel, who've been transformed by the gospel. But there's something we learn here about the gospel. There are priorities. There are opportunities. And we need to understand them. So eliminating poverty is not what we're about as Christians. Meeting the needs of the poor is... Do you see the difference? Eliminating poverty is not our goal. Caring for the poor when we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, as a secondary issue, as an outflowing issue of the gospel, is our call, is a mission, is something that we should be doing. But we have to understand it. If not, we can read this passage in one way saying, look it, my private jet is an outworking of the gospel because you're always going to have the poor. Or you say, no, the gospel is all about eliminating poverty from this passage or try to make it twisted like that, and you'll get it wrong on both sides. So what is the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that every sinner who's totally impoverished, in debt spiritually beyond all comprehension, can have every sin debt forgiven and be given all of the wealth of Jesus Christ's righteousness placed into their spiritual bank account so that one day when they stand before God the Father and God the Son, they will enter into eternity with the wealth of the righteousness of Christ on their bank account. That's justification. And so that when we have this justification, we go from being impoverished sinners who owe God an unpayable debt to righteous saints with all of Christ's righteousness on our account, not because we've done anything except trust in Christ alone. By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, we can be wealthy beyond belief, but it has nothing to do with money. It has to do with spiritual blessings. That's the good news. You can go to Africa, you can go to Nigeria, you can go to South Africa, you can go to Argentina, and you can preach the wealth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are starving. Not because you don't want to bring them out of poverty, not because you don't want to feed them, because you want to give them food that will last for eternity. If you drink this water, you will never thirst again. If you eat this food, you will have eternal life. What is that? That's Jesus Christ. Of course we want to see them fed. We want to take them out of that impoverished situation. But what good is a bunch of fat, happy people who die and go to hell? 
Welcome to America. So this is the important priority of the gospel. The gospel is not about the poverty. It's about spiritual poverty and spiritual wealth. We saw it last week. People who have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior inherit the kingdom. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And you can be flat broke, and you can be the poorest person you know, and at the same time have all of the wealth of heaven. That's what Ephesians 1 is all about. So let's look at it. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings on earth. No, these are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That does not mean you have to wait to heaven to get them. They're just spiritual heavenly blessings. And what are those? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We talked about that. That we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus Christ. In him, Jesus Christ, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He has lavished you with unbelievable riches. It's his grace. It's his mercy. He saved your soul. Is that true for you? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again? Sins forgiven, redeemed out of slavery, all of the righteousness of Christ placed on your account. If that's true, then you're eternally wealthy and you can be flat broke and have the joy of the Lord. You can die of starvation in the riches of Christ. We must understand what the gospel is and what it means for the poor and for the rich, for the middle class and everyone around the world. Now, if the spiritual riches of God's glorious grace lavished on you aren't enough, if that's not enough, if this, if this passage is not enough for you, if you must have earthly riches, then God isn't your God. Money is your God. And you have rejected eternal wealth for earthly wealth, and you are following in the footsteps of what person in the story? Now do you see it? Judas. Judas determines to betray. We got there. 14, verse 14. What does Judas do after this happens? Judas went to the chief priests. Judas, Judas initiates the encounter. What the Sanhedrin could never have thought possible happened. One of Jesus' closest friends, most rabid followers, is ready to betray him. They never thought this was possible. No one would ever do this. Not those 12 guys. Now the question we all want to ask is why? And I believe the why is in this passage, at least my best guess. Reality is set in for Jesus. A Judas. It already set in for Jesus long ago, but reality is set in for Judas. There was no hope for power and wealth with Jesus. The rat is leaving the sinking ship. He is getting what he can while he can. Going with Jesus will not lead to wealth and power, fame and fortune. Following Jesus will lead to where? A cross. And Judas wasn't in it for the cross. And this anointing is the final straw for Jesus. A Judas, I'm going to keep saying that. Please stay with me. Why do I confuse those two? I'm sorry for that. This anointing is the final straw for Judas. In John 12, you can write this down or you can look at it if you want to right now. John 12, the parallel passage in John of this very thing. John 12, starting in verse 4, this is what it says. 
the very same account, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was in it for the money. He was in it for the power. He was in it for the, the prestige. He was in it for that. And when all of this $50,000, $75,000 is wasted by pouring out on Jesus, what does Judas figure out? Uh, this, this ship is sinking quick, and what he said about crucifixion is probably going to happen. So I'm getting out what I can. Getting out while I can, getting out of it what I can. So he goes to the Sanhedrin, and what does he say? What will you give me? What is it worth to you for me to betray Jesus? And for Jesus betraying, for Judas betraying Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is worth the price of a slave. It's four months' labor. Now, that's not chump change. Think about it. Four months' labor. That's, 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 you can do something with that. But it's not change your life kind of money. It's not a year's worth of money. It's not a lot of money. And that's what Jesus is worth to Judas. He's worth four months' salary. So get what you can out of Jesus and then get on with your life. That's Judas. And that's a lot of professing Christians. What can I get from Jesus? Why am I here? Can he, can he give me a job? Can he give me a wife or a husband? Can he, can he get me some money? Can he get me a new car? What can Jesus give me? And once I get that, that's about all I'm going to get because the rest of it's going to start costing. I've got to get it out quick. Notice this also. Not everyone who promotes alleviating poverty cares for the poor. Not everyone who promotes alleviating poverty cares for the poor. Why does he promote caring for the poor so much? Because he's got his hand in the bag. And so many people who talk about eliminating the poor are in the business of caring for the poor because that is how they get rich. And we must not be swindled by social gospel warriors or social justice warriors. The social gospel is a false gospel. Social justice is actually injustice. There is the gospel and there is justice and there are no qualifiers. And both are accurately defined by the scriptures and we must know what they are and how they operate in a biblical worldview. If you want to know how to take care of the poor, read the Old Testament. And obey it. It tells us. It's not the way the world would do it. Because the world's way of caring for the poor leads to more poverty. Devastation every time. One more thing, if one of the 12 was a betrayer, what should we expect from Christ's followers today? Well, Matthew Henry says, surely we must never expect any society perfectly pure on this side of heaven. It's hard to believe that one of those 12 betrayed Jesus. It's also hard to believe that here today among us are those who are not Christians, who claim to be Christians, and who will one day walk away. It's hard to believe. But if it's true for those who were closest to Jesus for three years, it's going to be true among us. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen people walk away. And if you haven't seen it yet, it's because you've only been in it for a couple months. Just give it a year, people will walk away. Because people are not in it for Christ. They're not in it for the cross. In conclusion, what is Jesus Christ worth to you? What is Jesus Christ worth to you? Will you this morning reject him for 30 pieces of silver? Or will you follow him costing you everything? Will you reject him for what you think you'll get because you reject him? Or will you follow him knowing that it will cost you everything? Following Jesus doesn't get you 30 pieces of silver. Following Jesus gets you the cross. 
This is what Christ taught, and this is what Judas heard. I want you to hear these verses in conclusion. Matthew 10, 38 and 39. Judas was there, and he heard this, and he's doing a mental calculation, I believe. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus will cost you everything. It will cost you your life. Is Christ worth it for you? If not, cut and run now. Get out now because everything you're doing is just a waste if that's your mindset. That's not the only time Judas heard it. He also heard it again in Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, Judas is there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver for four months wages. He betrayed Christ because he was in it for the money. It doesn't take a lot of money to get us to give up Christ. It doesn't take much. I mean, why didn't he hold out for a year or two years worth? Because that was enough. And you ask people, when they give up Christ, when they reject Christ, why do you reject Christ? And they'll give you some cheap answer. But for the Christian, it's not a cheap answer. It's an everything answer. He will cost you everything. It's everything. Is he worth it? Is he worth it? Let's pray. Father, we just struggle so much to understand the incalculable wealth of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it has brought us untold spiritual riches, grace lavished upon us. And what it requires is everything. We receive everything and we give up everything. We give up everything here to receive everything there. We give up all these earthly things to receive all of the spiritual blessings. And it is worth it all. It's not just worth it all when we see Jesus, and that'll be absolutely true. It's worth it all right now. Give us the faith to believe us. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes of faith to see. Save souls this morning, those who have rejected Christ for, for nothing, thinking it's everything. May you bring them to see. May you bring them to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.